Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns, this is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. And in this case, farmers not only in the lower 48, but also including our big, brave territory of Alaska. Uh, welcome to the show to you, Emily Garrity. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think you might be the... Oh, no, you're not the first Alaskan, but um, you won't be the last, I hope. Um, maybe oh, you could just give us a little uh, introduction to the local farm scene in Alaska that you're a part of. Well, the farm scene in Alaska is picking up rapidly, as it seems to be across the United States there. Um, it's an exciting time. I live down in Homer, which is about a four-and-a-half-hour drive south from Anchorage on the um, Kenai Peninsula. And... Homer itself is a town um, of, of about 5,500 people in the town proper and about 12,000 in the surrounding areas. And in the nation, I think we have the most uh, high tunnels, the NRCS-funded high tunnels uh, per zip code. So it's pretty exciting. It's up and coming, and there's a lot going on even across the state um, through federal programs and even right here in Homer and a lot of state programs that are helping young new farmers out with all kinds of different funding options and networking and education opportunities. So that sounds good. Like you guys are getting your infrastructure in place uh, to support the growth of a regional food economy. Was it like that when you got started? You know, I got started um, up in Fairbanks about 12 years ago, um, and it was it seemed like a lot smaller network of people. It's it's definitely been growing and picking up over the last 12 years, and it seems more widespread and more people being um, getting interested in it and and diving in. I would say when I got started, it was a lot smaller pool of people, so it's exciting to see that spread. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your operation and how um, how you kind of calibrated it in matching what your market opportunities are in the place where you live? Sure. Yeah, I um, I moved to Homer about 11 years ago, and I was really excited about farming because I'd been working on a commercial operation up in Fairbanks. Um, in Fairbanks, I was on a five-acre farm, and we were a market garden and restaurant. We did restaurant sales. And I just really got enthusiastic about um, local food and and how to spread that out across um, the state. So when I moved down to Homer, I went to the farmer's market, and I noticed that there was probably about seven main growers, but they weren't really supplying um, enough for the demand. We have a really cooperative and and um, interested group of people living in our community. So the the people that were coming to the farmer's market didn't necessarily have enough 
to choose from in order to meet all the demand. And the restaurants are really interested as well. So I started off really small just to build myself up, um, knowing that that there, you know, was a market demand here. And I was really interested in the CSA model um, initially. So that's kind of where I got started. I, I used uh, some borrowed land, had four members just to get the ball rolling and while I was on my search for my own land, which I got about nine years ago. So it's, um, it's a really great community as far as local agriculture goes and the, the Demand is still here despite the growth in availability of those products. So I primarily sell to our farmer's market, which we have two days a week, um, May through September. And, and then I have a CSA because we have a lot of members or a lot of members of the community that can't necessarily make it to the farmer's market. And right now, most of our Alaskan-grown products, or at least Homer-grown products more specifically, aren't finding them their way into the um, grocery stores just because the demand's so high from direct farmer to consumer. So I'm still doing market CSA and then restaurant sales, and we're not having any problem um, finding finding ways to sell our local produce. Uh, well, this is a question I'm sure comes up a lot whenever you talk to people from down here, but uh, as somebody who has my primary residence, in the Adirondacks, but I'm tra I conveniently travel a lot uh, to California during the winter because it's so cold. People are always like, oh, but you can't grow anything up there. Your growing season must be like 12 minutes long. And then I point out to them that all of Canada is north of us, and then you up there are so far away. Let's, can we just talk about what it's like to farm in such a northern climate? Yeah, sure. It, it, I think it does surprise people how long our actual season is. Um, because of these high tunnels and some other season extension technologies that are going on, we're able to basically supply produce mid-April through October pretty easily. And then, you know, there's some brave souls out there that are even extending it farther. And some of these high tunnels, people like this winter, for example, we could still be growing in our high tunnel right now because it's been so mild. And some of those more hardier crops that grow through, you know, can frost and thaw and frost and thaw are, are growing right through the year almost. So I think it surprises people how long our season actually is. I live in a, in a pretty mild um, weather spot in comparison to the rest of Alaska because we're in South Central and we're coastal, we are actually Zone 5, and I think that has more to do with our um, low temperatures and our high temperatures. Our high temperatures are actually pretty low relative to what Zone 5 would normally have. I think the highest temperatures we see here are in the low 80s. So some of the crops that you might think would grow well in Zone 5 don't necessarily grow well outside here, but with the help of um, high tunnels and greenhouses, we can we can do a pretty big variety. So I think overall, people are really surprised at the length of our growing season. And it's not necessarily a huge variety of crops that we can grow that entire time. But if you're looking at spinach and kale and some of the more hardier mescaline mixes, um, you know, the brassica family in general, I think that we we can have those products available for a solid six months of the year. 
bit more um, the about the legacy of farming in Alaska. And obviously, you have one of the best managed fisheries in the world is in Alaska, and there's a lot of people who are land based uh, in your economy. And I guess I wanted to know when you're looking around at the barns and and corrals and infrastructure, when is that stuff from, and and what kind of farming has been going on? In Alaska, probably you don't have a huge Monsanto presence growing monoculture crops for export as an obstacle. Um, but what's the landscape like and the lineage of farming in Alaska? You know, it differs across the state. We're talking about a huge land area, of course, in the state of Alaska. And I think the history of farming um, kind of began in what we call the valley or Matanuska Valley, which is just east of Anchorage. And that's where you're going to see more monoculture crops, not necessarily for export out of Alaska, but throughout the state of Alaska. So bigger potato farms and strawberry farms, carrot farms. Um, and then up north in the interior, they're doing more barley, that kind of monoculture. But I think historically as a state, you see a lot more homesteading, home gardens um, that are using or have been using organic techniques for generations, um, and it's on a much, much smaller scale. So a lot of do-it-yourselfers, back-to-the-landers type of people that are growing food for their, their immediate family and, you know, maybe their surrounding neighborhood. Uh, and then I guess I've been in touch with some of the folks from the community fisheries, community fisheries community, uh, community of fisheries communities, uh, what's the overlap in the in the fisheries with farm world? You know, there's actually it's kind of a symbiotic relationship, I would say, especially for the farmers. Um, we, as as a group throughout the state utilize a lot of the byproduct of the fisheries for um, nutrients in our soil. So there's a big operation up outside of Palmer. It's called Sea Ag, and they take um, fish scrap from the fisheries and they dry it and grind it for bone meal. So that's one of the main nutrients that a lot of um, growers using organic methods across the state use. As far as what farmers are giving back to the fisheries, I, I don't really know that relation, but I know that people that are into agriculture across the state or eating locally also have the option of the, of, of the fisheries. So really, year-round, we can, we can eat local if that's a desire. And has there been some lessons? I mean... In terms of the way, the like place where decisions are made uh, for fisheries regulation and, and managing the kind of like the fish commons, are any of those processes paralleled in terms of rebuilding the regional food infrastructure, or have there been kind of parallel conversations going on? Or yeah, there definitely I mean, are. Oh, that's really good to hear. That's yeah, exciting. I would say one of the main conversations I've been involved with more recently is local foods in the schools. And there, I was just at a conference a couple of weeks ago, a farm-to-school conference, and there was representatives from the fisheries, from the agriculture community, um, 
from food security in the state, you know, there was all of these different entities that came together to talk about how we can get local foods throughout the state in the schools, you know, from fish to to produce. So I would say in that, that conversation, definitely um, we're seeing more of the different entities come together. And, I mean, obviously you're also looking for boyfriends in the young fishermen community. Is there, like, do you guys hang out together in Farmer Fish World, or is it separate? Separate. Um, maybe more so in the wintertime, because, you know, the, the fishing community is off to sea for a good portion of the summer, and we're, we're on the land. But, but we are having the same conversations. We are discussing the importance of local food and how, how these different crops are being extracted from the land, whether it be produce or fish. And, and you do, do see a parallel between the, the understanding and the desire to um, eat sustainably and locally. Um, let's talk a little bit about your land access story and, um, you know, moving to Alaska pretty young and um, starting a farm, like, really pretty young compared to a lot of farm start stories over down here, uh, what it was like to be able to wiggle your way into ownership and, and farm startup. What were some okay. of the factors that you think uh, helped you succeed? Well, I, I was born and raised in Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, so I've, I've been in Alaska my whole life, and I got into farming at about 19, I started working for an elderly woman who needed upkeep in her yard, and that included flowers and vegetables, and I just kind of found a love for it. We didn't really, I didn't really grow up in a gardening or farming family at all, um, but as soon as I got a taste for it, I was sold, and then I, I found a job um, at basically Basil up in Fairbanks, which was a commercial garden. I was speaking of the five-acre uh, produce garden, and then... And then I knew I wanted to move down to Homer, which is a smaller community and and not as much access to affordable land, I would say. So when I got down here, I started the search for my own land because I knew that's kind of the way I wanted to go, but realized I still needed more experience before starting my own operation. And there wasn't any farmers hiring necessarily, so I kind of just went for it. I made good friends with this couple that lived on a beautiful, um, what we call the bench, which is the most prime real estate for agriculture in my town. And they, they let me just do what I wanted in their yard. They had a big um, wildflower field, and I just tore up a piece of their land and started planting without really knowing a ton about nourishing the soil um, and nutrients to add. And and luckily, the soil that I was working on was had enough nutrients to get started. And I just started really, really small. I went to the farmer's market. My first farmer's market, I had, you know, maybe a two-foot-by-four-foot table with a couple different crops on it, but I just wanted to get started. I wanted to start meeting the community, get my name out there, making a presence at the farmer's market as small as it, as it was, and and start getting members involved, getting people in the community involved in what I wanted to do. So that's where I just started with four members, and I was, let's see, probably 25 at the time. And it took me a couple of years to acquire land. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a, a 
a big savings to get started or anything, but I was able to secure a down payment and approached someone um, who wasn't even selling their land at the time. I just found a piece of land that had great water, southern exposure, good topsoil, um, you know, and, and enough acreage where I, I knew I could start a farming operation, approached them, asked them if they'd be willing to sell it to me and and that at the, their lowest price and, and got started that way. And just luckily it, it was also a big wildflower field and I took a spade into the ground picked up a handful of dirt and it was pure black with about 10 worms in my hand. So I knew I could start there. And I just started um, on about a quarter acre, dug in. I think I had eight eight CSA members that year and made a little bit bigger presence at the farmer's market and slowly grew from there. Holy moly, one spade in the ground. And how did your negotiation go with the landowners? Like, like, what was your approach and maybe just, like, the tone that you took with them as a as a guidepost for other people who are, you know, looking longingly at land? What was the conversation like? Um, it was it was pretty amazing, actually. It was really e- it was really easy um, conversation because the I knew someone that had known the owner of this land. And and I, I think my main message for people out there looking for land is don't be afraid to approach people. If you see a parcel of land that looks like something you can grow on and, you know, it's a prime spot, maybe someone's been sitting on it for 20 years, which is, you know, the the case for me. That This woman lived in Anchorage. She hadn't even been to her land in over 20 years. And I just called her here in Alaska, which I imagine goes on across the states, we have a public database of every piece of land in the entire state and who owns it with an address and sometimes a phone number. So I just got it right off of our public website, the Kenai Peninsula Borough, made the phone call, told her I was looking at her land um, and I wanted to farm it and I was wondering if she would all be interested in selling it. And she basically said, hi, I hadn't thought about that, but, but let me give it some thought. And I got a phone call within that week that was um, a positive a positive feedback. She was she was willing to sell it, and she had no idea what it was worth. And I really didn't have a um, great idea of what it was worth. I kind of looked in the the area, and I didn't even talk to her about what I thought it was worth. I just said, "Well, what would you be willing to sell it for?" And she gave me a number that I thought was reasonable, and and we just went with it. It was a very minor negotiating, and and pretty easy to secure. So. You know, those phone calls might not always go the same way. It might not always be positive, but it it sure doesn't hurt to try. Wow. Wow. That's such a great feeling to have. Um, Yeah, it was. Well, no, I was just going to say, so you, 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 were you living on the land at first or did it come with housing or what what did you do about that? It was raw land. It was raw land when I bought it. And um, I started building right away. I secured the land in August, and then I put in a foundation for a house in September. And I went – it was a little bit easier, I think. This was 10 years ago. It was easier than to get loans from the bank. So I didn't at the time have um, steady income. So I went to the bank, and I – 
told them what I wanted to do, that I wanted to borrow money to get a house started, and they told me what I needed as far as an income, and I went and found a job at one of the local schools here at the high school and uh, and got the income they were looking for, went back with my paperwork that said this is my monthly income, and they gave me the, they gave me the loan to start building a house. So I think it was a little bit easier for me back then to secure that kind of funding than it is now, but also I wasn't aware of all of the opportunities through the Farm Service Agency, for example, or through NRCS, or I was really interested to hear um, the interview you had last week with the woman in Portland about the the kind of crowdfunding that's available now. So there's all kinds of different ways to secure money for for this type of operation, and even even more so agriculture specific than than when I was getting started. Man, I guess you can't. There's no there's no downloadable PDF for just plain old brave and strong. Um, yeah, I think just go for it. I was talking to a, a young man at the same conference I was saying with the farm to school, and he was, you know, maybe 10 years or so younger than me living in Kodiak, which is also hard to secure land. And and he he kind of had already given up. He's like, there's no way, I don't have any money. There's no way I can do this. I have this dream to be a farmer, and I don't know what to do. I don't have any money. I just don't think it's possible. And I was just so disappointed to hear that and gave him a little pep talk about just trying and, and yeah, being brave and asking questions and going to um, agriculture meetings. And I think one of my biggest resources has been the conferences that I attended, networking with other farmers in the state, hearing about programs um, from other farmers and, and what kind of things they've used to secure land or just secure funding for infrastructure or tools or operating costs. There's there's just so many resources out there and and um, funds that are available for this specific thing. So I encourage people to try. Okay, I'll do my best to encourage people to try. Um, uh, <laughs> I know you do. No, no, I'm just joking. Let's talk about the... Like, is there any feedback loops? I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, the season extension and the and these uh, NRCF. Ooh, we have not very much time left. Oops, a daisy. Sorry. Um, really quickly, then, um, how to be giving positive? How to be giving positive feedback loops when these programs that are working to get grants to people on the ground building greenhouses and season extension. Um, I wonder if there's been a, a, an opportunity for you in that community of very high-density greenhouse users or um, hoop house users to provide feedback about what that means for your local food economy. You know, I think we're getting better about it. Um, I've been honestly a little bit disappointed as far as as the information that's going back into the community as far as yields and and what kind of um, quantities of food are going back in um, to the community from these high tunnels. But there's being more studies are going on to get that information out to the public. And here in Homer specifically, because we do have such a large number of users, there's 
um, a high tunnel group that meets every month, and people that are interested can come to those meetings and just hear firsthand how they're working for individuals. And the high tunnel usage in, in our town specifically, a lot of it is, is home usage um, and not necessarily commercial. So... I think it's getting better. I don't know all of the different avenues in which people are sharing that information, but um, I know Facebook is one of them, of course. Social media gets all kinds of information out there at all times. But as far as formal documentation and outreach, there seems to be more interest in it and, and more going on, but I don't know what all of those are at this time. Um. Yeah, it seems like that's one of the areas to focus as we're moving into farm building time again is a greater connectivity and, and kind of policy, how, how, how those grade projects that NSAC takes on to get support for within the farm bill are translated down and up the policy chain and how we as next generation growers can use our voices effectively in that process and say, look, Look how much good has come from this limited program. Let's double, triple, quadruple. Um, you know, I often am quoting the fact that just in California, just the organic food companies spent more money um, fighting for GMO labeling as Uncle Sam spent on the beginning farmer and rancher program for the whole country. And that, you know, it's like granola money is like uh, not enough money to to deal with the problem that we had. You know, we lost 100,000 growers between those last two farm bills, and and we are trying to grow another 100,000 with, you know, like $20 million a year. But um, it's going to take more money and more effort and more time to grow um, and more work to grow that, that many new growers. Right. Anywho, I'm on my little rant. No, I think you're right, though. I think it's it's important um, for us as producers to make sure that we're documenting exactly what we're doing and how we're improving our local economy on all different um, aspects, from local food consumption to keeping dollars in town and and just how drastically this agriculture movement is is changing people's lives, really. I think it really is. I really think it is. Um, well, I just want to give you a last little word, and if you have any announcements um, or if you're trying to recruit more farmers to Alaska or upcoming conferences where people who are thinking about farming in Alaska might go and get their orientation session. I'm coming up there in October for the Community Fisheries Conference. Um, and oh, great. See if in their efforts to recruit some young fishermen that they can draw any inspiration from the work that we've been doing in the young farmer world. So I'm really interested to explore the intersection of those two communities. How about, what have you yeah, got going definitely. I'd say um, one of the best places to go, and it's upcoming here, is a Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education, the SAR conference that happens annually in Fairbanks. It's um, I don't know the exact dates off the top of my head. I think it's March 11th, 12th, somewhere in there. But if you just looked up SAR Alaska, it would it would come right up. And it's an excellent conference. They really do a good job getting speakers from all over the state and across the nation 
to just pump up the agriculture community, and it's one of the best networking places that I've been to in the state. So if you're interested in agriculture in, the, in Alaska, that would be a really good first stop. Um, well, thank you so much for being here on the show. Um, I, it's really great, and I want to make one little plug before they cut me off. Uh, we Greenhorns have a couple of upcoming events in Berkeley, California, two screenings of two great new documentary films about land, land transfer, land access, uh, land struggle, land drama, and they are Brookford Almanac, wonderful movie about New Hampshire, Dairy Family, and Hannah Ranch, a documentary about a family in Colorado who were doing, um, who do holistic management but have had to contend with a lot of adversity, um, which is, you know, practically normal in ag. Uh, but, of course, critical for for us to keep land in ag and keep it in sustainable ag to, to help people sustain through those intergenerational transfers and be able to get from leased land to own land and long-term stable leases, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the movies that are going to be screened, and then we have great panels of practitioners um, young farmers who are leasing and owning and moving in between, uh, uh, and then young ranchers, similarly, you know, trying to navigate a career in stewardship and b- building a business on both owned land and leased land. So that is the latest upcoming, and and also we're doing some parties, uh, Grange parties in Ojai, Grange, Grange events in San Luis Obispo, and I'm going to give a keynote talk in Portland, Oregon, plus a mixer for young farmers in near Eugene, Oregon, on March 4th and 5th. Whew, that's a lot. Okay, we can do it. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye, thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 